Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Inside the Studio on iHeartRadio. My name's Jordan Runtog, but enough about me. I have so much to say about my legendary guest. He's one of the most distinctive voices in music. His ethereal, velvety vocals helped make his group The Zombies one of the most unique bands of the British Invasion. Their unmistakable blend of Beatles, Bill Evans, Blues, and Baroque can be heard on 60s hits like She's Not There, Tell Her No, and Time of the Season. Now, for years, those three titles basically summed up their creative reputation. But the band has experienced an unprecedented popular resurgence in the new millennium thanks to an album that was basically ignored upon its release. I'm talking, of course, about the brilliant Odyssey and Oracle. It's a kaleidoscopic musical vision spanning cultures, genres, and moods. Released just after the band split in 1968, the album has risen from obscurity to be hailed as a pop masterpiece, praised by the likes of Tom Petty, Dave Grohl, and Paul Weller. Many so-called lost albums owe their rehabbed reputation to a film soundtrack or a well-chosen commercial placement. Not so with Odyssey and Oracle. Its rediscovery relies purely on the strength of the songs. In 2003, Rolling Stone placed it at number 100 on their list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. And in 2019, the band themselves were given a much-delayed induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This renewed popularity helped the zombies rise from the dead. Over 30 years after their split, my guest reunited with his bandmate Rod Argent, the zombies' organist and chief songwriter, and they began touring pretty much nonstop at least until the COVID crisis put a stop to live music. Undeterred, they kept busy with work on a new Zombies record, likely due out in 2022. My guest also helped oversee the 50th anniversary reissue of his solo debut, One Year, complete with a bonus disc of outtakes and unheard demos. That'll be hitting shelves on November 5th. Until they can hit the road once again, the Zombies are thrilling fans with their so-called World Tour in One Night, a livestream concert held from the floor of Studio 2 at London's iconic Abbey Road Studios, the famous room where the Beatles recorded the bulk of their work. It was a fitting choice of venue. Odyssey and Oracle and One Year were recorded just a few steps down the hall. Fans can watch the concert and the special Q&A with veteran rock journalist David Frick on demand through October 3rd via Veeps.com. I'm so thrilled to welcome one of my rock and roll heroes, Colin Blundstone. We started our talk discussing his return to Abbey Road. It was really good fun. And I mean, there's such an atmosphere there. To be in Studio 2 where the Beatles recorded the majority, the vast majority of their tracks, um, 
and and also of course uh, I've worked in there with the Alan Parsons project Alan always worked in that studio although the zombies and on my solo albums we we worked in a studio just up the hall studio three uh, which is the first studio you come to when you when you walk through the front door um the zombies never recorded in studio two that was our first time playing together in studio two Wow, I mean, just even just being in that studio, though, I mean, it must have just, as you say, packed with so many memories. I mean, what a special night for you all. Absolutely. You know, I found that when we first went there, I think we might have gone there the day before we actually played. And um, I was saying to all the guys who hadn't been in Abbey Road, I was saying, yeah, this is Studio 2 where the Beatles recorded. This is Studio 3 where we did Odyssey and Oracle and so much history. And I had to stop because I was becoming emotional about the whole thing. And I thought, no, no, they're going to have to work this out for themselves because this is having an effect on me. Uh, I don't know what it was doing to them, but it was certainly having an effect on me. Oh, I can only imagine. I mean, I, I've been lucky enough to, to stand in Studio 2 and there is an energy. You're right. It, it's, it really envelops you. Yes, absolutely. It does intrigue me because it's the only studio I've ever known where the control room is on the next floor up. And so there's this flight of stairs up the left-hand side. And I've always thought of it as the walk of shame. When <laughs> you've been down there trying to do a vocal, say, as I was with Alan Parsons. And, you know, he wants to say, oh, Colin, you know, you haven't really got hold of this. <laughs> there's a problem here. Would you like to come up and have a chat? And, you know, you clip, clop, clip, clop, up this. Trudging up the stairs. There's nowhere to hide, you know. <laughs> I've never known another studio like that where, where you have to go up this open staircase to to be told where you're going wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's such an incredible place. One of the details that I really loved about about your, your performance the other night was that you had the stage crew dressed in, in white lab coats. And I don't know if that was intentional, but I felt like a fitting nod to the days when Abbey Road was treated like a laboratory and they had the engineers dressed like scientists. Well, they did. Um, it wasn't my idea, but you, you, you're absolutely right. They were dressed in white. What happened was the engineers actually used to be dressed in jackets, collars and ties. They, I, looking at the pictures, it reminds me of, of old um, sessions back in the day. They had collars and ties. And then what we would call the boffins, the, the technicians... <laughs> who would, um, you know, once in a while things would go wrong. And in a flash, these guys would be up there. You didn't, you didn't phone out for somebody. There's, there's a whole department that looks after any, any technical problems. They wore white coats. And then there was a, seemed to be an army of guys who just moved things around, um, sort of loaders. And they had brown coats. So it was, in a way, it was quite regimented. It was a real contradiction at Abbey Road because... They made so many wonderful records there and they had great, great engineers. We worked almost exclusively with Peter Vince and Jeff Emmerich and they were absolutely wonderful. But they did have an old-fashioned side to it. They, they were very strict rules. And I think it changed when, probably after Sgt Pepper, because the Beatles were recording all night. But, and before that, there were very strict rules. You started at 10 and you must finish at one. That's your session. Then you started at two and you went to a five and you had to stop. And then you went from seven till 10. And particularly in Studio Three, you had to stop at 10 because the soundproofing wasn't very good in Studio Three. And it's built right next door to an apartment block. And they used to complain about the noise. So you had to finish at 10 o'clock. It, it, was, it was quite strange, really. Wow, I mean, such a, a fascinating... I mean, as you say, did, did that almost sort of regimented mentality almost help the sessions in a way? Because it forced you to sort of really have the songs down and really get in and get out and know exactly what you wanted to do. In a way, it does. And I mean, particularly with um, Odyssey and Oracle, we had a very limited budget. We had a thousand pounds. So, well, I mean, I, you know, it, it's not very much. It wasn't very much then. And it certainly isn't very much now, of course. But to, to have a thousand pounds and try and do an album in Abbey Road, you're, you're up against it. So we rehearsed really extensively before we went in to do Odyssey and Oracle. And when we got to the studio, we knew what songs we were doing. We knew what keys we were going to do them in. And we knew the arrangement. 
We're just looking for a performance. And we recorded very, very fast. But there was, a, there was that added element that we knew we could record from 10 to 1 and that was it. And on, on one occasion, there's a song called Changes on Odyssey and Oracle. And it's the only song that we're all singing on. Everybody's singing harmonies on that. And so we were all round the piano, lovely Steinway piano in Studio 3. There's a red light on at the door, but because we're recording, we're singing. And it, the, the hand of the clock just went past one o'clock. And these guys in brown coats came in. And we're singing round the piano. And they took the piano out and took it to another studio. In the middle of a take? Yes. And we, we just kept singing. Well, we didn't dare stop because we just didn't have any money to, to pay for those sessions. So I've always liked to think that you can hear the piano being moved out on that particular track. But I think we had to do it again because I think it was a bit noisy. I, I've listened. I can't hear the piano being moved. Um, but it did happen. It was, um, it was quite interesting. I was rather proud of us that these guys, I didn't know who they were. I'd never seen them before. And they walk in and take the piano. They could have been stealing the piano for all I knew. <laughs> and we just kept singing. So I was quite proud of us in that respect. I was going to say, that's professional right there. Even though the rolling piano's around, you don't miss a note. It's professional. It's also desperation. When you, when you don't have any money and the studio time is running out, you just keep going, you know. And um, so that's what we did. Well, d despite the uh, sort of overzealous movers, I mean, Abbey Road then and, and now is such a technologically advanced place. How did the, the cutting edge technology at the time uh, help foster Odyssey and Oracle? Well, of course, they just literally finished Sgt. Pepper. I think the Beatles had left two days before we went in. And famously, wow. John Lennon left his Mellotron in Studio 3, and Rod used it. And if you listen to Odyssey and Oracle, it's Mellotron all the way through it. It would have been a different album if John hadn't have left his Mellotron behind. And they also left percussion instruments all on the floor, tambourines, maracas and things. So we were picking up the percussion instruments that the Beatles had left from Sgt. Pepper, which was a big thrill for us because we were huge Beatles fans then and now. Um, but I say that because just before that, the Beach Boys in America had been using an eight-track machine. Well, there, there was no eight-track machine in the UK. The, John Lennon said we want to uh, use an eight-track machine. There wasn't one in the UK. And he just left the engineers to sort that problem out. And what they came up with was they actually attached two four-track machines. I mean, they, they call it sort of, I don't know, it's quite rough, I think. They just put two four-track machines together, which in effect gave you seven tracks. It didn't give you eight tracks. You, you lost one track when you did this. But so the Beatles have been using seven-track recording, and, and we inherited that from them because we are used to recording on four tracks in the uk everyone recorded on four tracks and this gave us a lot of opportunities to try other things for instance on time of the season the track was recorded and rod got the idea of putting a and we got an extra track so we, he just it was one take you know he just went into the studio and he put that on 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 the track and i mean it wouldn't be the same song without that and we wouldn't have been able to do it if we'd only had four tracks. So it, it, did, it really did help in many ways. It's so interesting to hear how, how you build these tracks up. I mean, you, you mentioned Brian Wilson. Uh, I, in my mind, I've always associated Odyssey and Oracle and Pet Sounds as just for their sonic scope and, and the, the rich harmonies and the lyrical maturity. And I think about Brian using his sort of modular recording technique for something like Good Vibrations, where he would record segments of songs and assemble them almost like movie scenes because they all had a very different... And I, I listened to tracks like something like Changes and Odyssey and Oracle or even Brief Candles where it's it, there's such distinct musical moments and textures. How would you go about assembling tracks like that? Did you go instrument by instrument and build it up or were they complete band performances? Complete opposite. Oh, we didn't have the time to do things like that. I don't think it even occurred to us, well, but we, we were recording really fast. And from memory, all of those tracks would have all four guys in the band playing at the same time in the same room. Wow. That, that would be the basic track. And um, then I would put a lead vocal on 
and uh, Chris and Rod would put harmonies on afterwards. That's as I remember it. Um, and occasionally then, because we had these extra tracks, um, for, again, using Time of the Season as an example, uh, there are two keyboards on there, especially on the playout at the end, that's, there's two keyboards playing. They're both, it's both Rod, but he's just playing two organ solos at the end. And there are probably one or two other instances of that. And also we double track some of the harmonies, which we weren't able to do before. So it wasn't incredibly complicated, the things that we added. It's just that we were able to sometimes overdub a keyboard and overdub harmonies as well. It, but it, it really did help. And then once or twice we would put an effect on, like the time of the season, hang, clap and, and breath. You just solved a mystery that I've been grappling with for years. I've tried to play the outro solo, never realizing those were two keyboards, and I could never figure out why I could never get it. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, another thing with our harmonies, which I think uh, has probably puzzled people a little bit, we didn't do harmonies in a way that most people did, where being the lead singer, I would just sing the melody, and then we would have a somebody sing a harmony above and somebody sing a harmony below. We didn't do things like that. Because I was a fairly indisciplined vocalist, I had no um, classical background or, or, uh, at all. And um, Rod would always say to me, you sing what you hear. This would usually be in a chorus. I, I'm, I'm thinking about more than anything else. He would sing, say, you sing what you hear as the melody. And because I've got quite a high voice, I would often automatically go into the top harmony so having established that's what I heard, we would, we would play that four or five times with me, probably just Rod and me on piano. And um, we'd play that till I've got that locked in my mind. And then he would try and find a very easy harmony for Chris, because Chris has got to play bass at the same time as he's yeah. singing. So we'd try and find a very easy uh, harmony for Chris. And because of doing those two things, Rod often would have an incredibly complex harmony that he had to fill in all the, the holes that, that we weren't uh, achieving in, in, in the harmony. So it, it, some of our harmonies are really unusual. And if you just, if you tried to copy them, I think it would, be, well, you'd be all right if you knew what I just said. I've let the, I've let the cat out of the bag, haven't I? If you <laughs> knew what I just said, it would be a lot easier. But people try to copy them and of course, they're thinking of somebody singing the top harmony, somebody singing the bottom harmony, and somebody singing the melody. But that's not, sometimes that wasn't how we did it. Uh, a few years back, you toured with, with Brian Wilson for the Something Great from 68 tour. Uh, what was that like, the interplay between, between you and, and Brian? I mean, that must have been like a master class in harmony, that tour. It was incredible. Uh, I'm a huge Brian Wilson fan and, and Beach Boys fan, you know, and, and always have been. I, I just think they're absolutely fantastic. He's a master. Uh, it was wonderful to tour with him. And of course, he has an incredible band who we got to know quite well. And one of the wonderful moments was they would always have a warm-up before the show. And they would usually, um, they'd usually sing In My Room, just uh, a cappella. It was mind-bogglingly beautiful. If, ever, if I had the chance, I would be there every night if I could. Um, and I just like to listen to them sing. Absolutely fantastic. And, and you really hear it when it's just voices in a room. Um, you know, it's not, it's not out on a stage with all acoustic problems and whatever. You're right there in the middle of it. Absolutely wonderful. Great singers. And there's a, a version that I've heard of you on stage with Brian singing God Only Knows, and it, it, it brought tears to my eyes. An absolutely incredible well, performance. I mean, I'm always going to remember that. I only did it twice. I did it in Los Angeles and I did it in Seattle. And I'll always remember that. Um, it was a wonderful experience. But it was one of, you know, it's one of the greatest contemporary songs that's ever been written. So to have the opportunity to sing that with the guy who wrote it, um, it's a little intimidating. It's a little intimidating, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a great thrill. It was, it was wonderful. Oh, I encourage everyone listening to to go go check that out online, and also check out the interview after the Abbey Road live stream that that you and Rod did with with the journalist David Frick, and he he uh, during that discussion, which was so illuminating and so interesting, he mentioned. Uh, 
you're singing parts as a full performance and not sort of comping in, you know, a chorus here, redoing a line or two there, and really wanting to, to sing complete takes start to finish. That's so interesting to me. I wanted to ask you more about your, your process of, of, of completing vocal takes. Well, um, particularly when I'm working with Rod, which pretty much now is exclusively what I'm doing, it, it really comes from Rod. I mean, I would prefer to do it that way anyway, but Rod is adamant. You know, we do a whole performance and uh, we'll do four or five takes and then try, try and pick a favourite one and then just see if there's anything better that we, you know, we're not, I would say to Rod, I'm not proud, you know, <laughs> this, we need to patch something that's fine by me. And, and more recently, I'm quite pleased that, um, you know, as I've developed vocal technique a little bit, the takes will be very, very similar. So almost identical. So if he wants to double track anything, it's, it's there. If we've done four or five takes, that he can just take an, another take and there's your, there's your double track. If you want to double, and if you want a treble track, you know, it's there if you want to do it. But we are, it's as simple as that, Ray. Really. We always do whole performances um, and, and then we'll do four or five and then stop and see where, see where we are. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. And while we're on the topic of your incredible voice, I, I think I'm correct in saying that you still perform these songs in their original key, uh, which, and you sound just as rich and flawless as 55 years ago. I, I think I speak for all singers and vocal coaches listening right now when I ask, how do you do that? What is your secret? Do, do you have a special tea or what? I mean, how do you protect your voice? Well, I do do um, singing exercises. Both Rod and I started with a singing coach called Ian Adam in London. He's, he's sadly no longer with us, but um, he used to coach a lot of the singers in the West End, which would be like Broadway in America. And um, he, he never wanted to change your voice, but he, he was trying to make it stronger and more accurate because singers in the West End have to sing night after night after night. Um, and, you know, you have to have a fairly strong voice to do that. And 
he just taught me a little bit about singing technique and he gave me a series of exercises. And when we're on the road, I'll do those exercises before sound checks, probably half an hour before sound check. And then I do them again before the show. So I will have sung, I mean, the sound check itself may be quite long. It, it just depends. It's more dependent on um, te technology than anything else, uh, if everything works. Uh, but I will have sung for an hour before the, the show starts, but not but in two half-hour bursts, one before sound check and one before the show. So hopefully my voice is warmed up. And if I do it every day, it, it just makes it stronger. I mean, I think people who don't practice are very prone to losing their voice. And you, you often see that where a band goes out on tour and the lead, lead singer loses his voice after two or three nights. And I just want to avoid that. And another thing I often hear is singers will come off and they'll say, you know, once my voice had warmed up after the fourth or fifth song, I mean, it's really great. And I don't say anything, but I'm thinking, well, why didn't you warm your voice up before you went on? And then it would have been great from the first song. I mean, I'm not saying it always works, but it's it's worth a try. It, it helps. Yes. Um, that, so that's, that's all I do, really. Uh, I try, when we're on the road, I do try and eat sensibly. I obviously try and get as much sleep as possible. I think you need to drink a lot of water. I will always have water on stage. I've, there's one occasion when I thought I'd lost my voice in the middle of a show. I honestly, I thought it had gone completely and I drank some water. It just came back just like that. So, or I would always say, have some water around. I, I admire people who can do a, like a two hour set with not drinking any water, but I, I'm not quite sure how they do that. <laughs> the other thing that I've done is that I, I was always, always like to enjoy a concert night and we'd always have a few drinks and you know make a bit of a social of it but four or five years ago it's four and a half years ago i gave up alcohol altogether and you know that's a, that's a big um a big thing to do but if you think you perform better without alcohol uh it's worth considering you know if you're getting a bit sloppy if you make mistakes and your intonation's not on the button it might be worth looking at your yeah, alcohol consumption <laughs> i'm not telling people what to do i'm only telling you what i do you know actually i'm going to have a drink of, talking about water i'm just going to have a drink of water <laughs> all amazing tips i mean you know you, your voice is so distinctive but it blows me away how many different styles you sing in i mean i'm thinking about your first album you go from Gershwin tunes to Smokey Robinson to Bo Diddley. When you first started singing, were there voice voices that you wanted to emulate? Who were some of your 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 vocal heroes when you were were uh, first starting out as a musician? Well, I, I'll tell you in a minute that I only became a singer really by chance. But um, and I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. But uh, for me, it was always the the greats of rock and roll: Chuck Berry, Elvis, Little Richard. They were the people that I idolized. Um, and then that encouraged me to buy a guitar. Well, my parents bought a guitar and it wasn't easy for them. You know, they, they bought me a guitar and I was eternally grateful. And through that, I got an introduction to this band that was forming as a guitarist. And I went along and um, it was our first ever rehearsal. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know Rod at the time. I knew one guy who was in this, joining this band and he was late. So I, I kind of <laughs> turned up and there were all these strangers there. And it wasn't helped by the fact that I played a lot of rugby and I'd just broken my nose and I had two black eyes and taping across my face. So I actually oh. looked like a zombie when I turned up. <laughs> they were, I think they were a bit afraid of me, actually, which was lovely. Um, anyway, I was a rhythm guitarist. <laughs> it didn't last long. <laughs> I was a rhythm guitarist and Rob was going to be the lead vocalist. And we, at this first rehearsal, we played... Um, we played a song called Malaguena, an instrumental called Malaguena. It's an old classic tune. And uh, Rod didn't, because it was an instrumental, he didn't do anything because he was the singer. And then we had a break and he went over there. Just by chance, there was an old broken down piano in the corner. And he just started playing Nut Rocker by Billy Bumble and the Stingers, which is, it's quite an accomplishment for, say, a 15-year-old boy to play that with, with authority. And I went over to him and, as I said, I didn't really know him. So I... Probably, I probably didn't call him by his name. I just said, Oi, <laughs> Oi you should play keyboards in this band. I, I don't know, why aren't you playing keyboards? 
And he was adamant. He said, no, it's our rock and roll band. We want three guitars, which was the, the fashion at the time. And that conversation ended. And then at the end of that first rehearsal, I was just going to put my guitar in its case. And I just sang a Ricky Nelson song pretty much to myself, just in the corner, just having a bit of fun. It was either Hello, Mary Lou, or It's, it's Late. May well have been It's Late. And um, Rod came over. I wasn't singing to him. He just heard it. And he came over and he said, look, I'll tell you what, if you'll be the lead singer in the band, I'll play keyboards. And that essentially was how the zombies came together. Wow. Maybe, maybe he couldn't sing and play at the same time back then. <laughs> maybe he couldn't. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know whether he could or not, but that, that was the beginning of wow. it. Really. I mean, we were always slightly different in that we were a keyboard-based band when that was not the fashion at all. And we always did three-part harmony, you know, and, and very few other bands were doing three-part harmony at the time, but we always did it. It's so interesting to think about how much R&B you all played early in your career. And a lot of British bands, too. I mean, got my mojo working, Roadrunners, Sticks and Stones. It's funny to think the zombies reintroducing this American music to Americans in a lot of ways. At one time, the zombies were called the Zombies R&B because that's what we played. Um, well, we dropped the R&B. And of course, um, just before the first, we won a rock and roll competition which led to a contract with Decca. And we were introduced to a producer called Ken Jones, who was going to produce that first session. And about two weeks before the session, he said to us, you know, session's coming up in two weeks' time. You could write something for this session if you want. And then he went on to talk about other things. It wasn't a big deal. And Rod went away and he wrote, She's Not There. Came back to us 48 hours later and played us this song. I'm, you know, we knew it was a, a special song. And actually, Chris White wrote a great song as well, which was the B-side, You Make Me Feel Good. I, I didn't know either of them could write songs. It was a huge surprise to me. And that changed everything, because up until then, the, we've been playing predominantly R&B classics. But, of course, we recorded She's Not There, and it was a huge hit. And um, people wanted more songs like that. We, we also used to uh, play... Uh, quite a lot of Beatles tunes as well. But once we had a hit record, we couldn't play Beatles tunes and people didn't really want the R&B classics. So there was there was a, a problem because Rod and Chris didn't have a backlog of songs. They were the first two songs. Actually, Rod's told me he had written two songs before that, um, but he didn't have a backlog of songs and neither did Chris White. And so it created a bit of a problem for us, especially as Decca always put pressure on artists who'd had a chart record to, uh, within six weeks, to have a follow-up. It's Six weeks? It's just, it's just inviting you to fail. I mean, we were working wow. every night. We were, we were out on tour. There was no opportunity to write. And so when this sort of dreaded six weeks came up, roughly speaking, we had one song. Chris White had got a song. It wasn't an A-side. We all knew it wasn't an A-side. Leave Me Be, it was called. It was a very dark and depressing song. <laughs> it was all we had. And so Decca put it out. And of course, it was a dismal failure. And in the States, we skipped that. And the follow-up to She's Not There in America was Tell Her No, which was quite a big hit. And it was a small hit in the UK as well. But people always seem to be so short-sighted in those days. You know, you have to have a follow-up. Regardless of whether you've got any material or not, they would just force this follow-up follow out of you. And it just seems like they're almost willing you to fail until they can get on to the, the next new band. And in many cases, that is what happened. I mean, it's so, I mean, you think about it, I, the zombies seem to fall prey to so many really unfortunate music industry practices in the 60s, both creatively and financially. I mean, the thing that I think a lot of people don't understand now is how could the zombies break up when you've just completed an album as spectacular as Odyssey and Oracle? In hindsight, it almost looks like you broke up at the top of your game creatively, but obviously there were so many more factors and forces at play. Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I completely agree with you, but the fact is that we were very, very poorly managed and it's difficult to say how poorly managed without sort of getting into <laughs> legal territory. Blaming, yeah. Really, really poorly ma uh, 
manage. And particularly the three guys who weren't writers, thank heavens, the writer's income didn't go through our management company. So Rod and Chris were actually doing quite well. And, you know, and that's wonderful because they, they were writing great songs and they were being rewarded for it. But the three non-writers, we just weren't earning any money. I mean, we were just broke. And we'd been three years on the road uh, playing all the time. We just had a very challenging tour into the Far East where we didn't realize it. But when we got there, we had sort of five records in the top 10. We, we played at the Araneta Coliseum in, in, the, in uh, Manila, or just outside of Manila, Quezon City. And we opened to 28,000 people. We had no idea this was happening. We did a 10-day residency. We played to 15,000 in the matinee on the Saturday after the 28,000. And on the Saturday night, we played to 32,000 people. This basically went on for 10 nights. We were being paid 80 pounds a night, which is... Each? No. (laughs) (laughs) And our manager and our agent were taking 30% of that. I mean, in in a way, it's funny, but... Then when you also think about it, you know, we couldn't live. We just didn't have any money. And even we could see that that was not right. And when we came back, we left that manager and that agent. And I think he more or less gave up on us, really. I think, you know, he, he knew that we knew what was going on. And so we were free of him, but we couldn't find anyone else who was interested. But we got this deal with CBS for a small amount of money, as I said. And especially Rod and Chris wanted to make an album of their songs that hurt, that, that sounded how they envisioned, envisioned them. Can't speak this afternoon, I don't know why. Um, and, and so that's what we did. And then at the end of it, we released a single in the UK called Care of Self 44. It's the first track on the album. And oh. I think it's the most commercial song on there, actually, myself. It's incredible. I, I still will never understand why that was not a smash. That is an amazing song. And at the time, of course, the business was very uh, singles orientated. So just a little bit later, it was more albums, the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. But uh, the single was ignored, really. It it wasn't played and and it didn't sell. And it it just seemed as though we'd we'd come to the end of the road. And in actual fact, the band finished before Odyssey and Oracle was even released. And in a way, that... That was a little silly, but it's just, it was the, it was because of the year or so before, it, it just drained us, you know, and nobody had any money. In particular, Paul Atkinson, our guitarist, had just got married and he absolutely had no money. And he'd been offered a job in a computer firm, you know, at really good money. And he, he you know, he, was, he didn't want to take it, but there, w- there wasn't an alternative for him, really. And so it just seemed that it would be best that we just very amicably that the band should should end. And that was it. And then Al Cooper was over in London and he bought about 200 albums. And he just said one of them just really stood out to him. It was Odyssey and Oracle. He'd just taken a job with CBS as a producer at CBS. And on his first day, he went to see Clive Davis and he said, we have to buy this album. It doesn't matter what it costs. We've got to get this album, Odyssey and Oracle. And Clive Davis said to him, we own that album. We, <laughs> we, weren't, we weren't going to release it. <laughs> you know? And Al Cooper fought for it. You know, we owe him so much. He fought for it. And eventually the album was released. And I think there were either three or four singles released before one of them, took and that was time of the season and um famously a, a dj in boise idaho would not stop playing time of the season and gradually it spread from boise out and it, it took months you know and then it, it got right across the country and it, eventually it was a huge hit i feel like i that should wouldn't know the name now. of that dj as well i do <laughs> know the name of that dj send him a thank you card I know. Well, absolutely. He changed our lives, you know, as did Al Cooper. But it's a very strange story. And even when Time of the Season was a hit, Odyssey and Oracle wasn't really a hit. I think it went into the Billboard Top 100 once for like two weeks, got to about 98. It wasn't really a hit. But then sort of 10 years later, 
people started talking about it, and in particular, Tom Petty in America mm. and Paul Weller in the UK became champions of this album and of the band, and uh, they wouldn't stop promoting. You know, I mean, it's a wonderful thing when you've got two internationally wonderful artists like that who are acting as your promoters. You know, <laughs> and they wouldn't stop promoting the album, and eventually, it, it started to really create a lot of interest and and i think rolling stone and um, they do these charts every five or eight years or something but certainly in one of the charts we were in the top 100 albums of all time they do a top 500 but we actually just got into the top 100 which is incredible for an album that's never really been a hit although year on year it just sells more and more it's it's a mystery i cannot tell you how this has happened but 50 or nearly 60 years later, we're talking about this album that was never a hit. And, and, and yet it's, it's meant so much to so many people uh, as a work of art, you know, that people are inspired by it and uh, constantly write about it and talk about it. And it was never a commercial success at the time. And most people probably think it still isn't a commercial success, but it sells in quite considerable numbers now. I mean, that's what's so precious about it is that, you know, most people rediscover these albums through a, a movie soundtrack or a commercial or something like that. But this just purely stands on its own merit and word of mouth and people who just pass it down and say, this is really incredible. Check it out. And it just completely sells just based on the strength of the songs and the music. Well, Paul Weller, if, if he talks to you about Odyssey and Oracle... Which and he talks to a lot of people about Odyssey and Oracle. And if you haven't got the album or you don't know what he's talking about, he will buy you a copy and give it to you. <laughs> Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Also, you just mentioned films, and that's another, I find quite intriguing thing, that zombie songs turn up in films a lot. We were, we were in a, the Disney film Cruella at the That's beginning right. of the summer. And the Cannes Film Festival, a French film won the Cannes Film Festival called Titane, T-I-T-A-N-E. And She's Not There was in that. And there's another film that's just come out called Where Do You Go To, Where Do You Go To Bernadette with Kate, and I always say her name wrong, Kate Blanchard. Um, she's a very, very famous actress. And that's got She's Not There in it. So there's, that's this summer. We've had three wow. songs in films. Plus, there's a department store in the States called Colm, K-O-L-H. And they used a zombie song over the summer. It was uh, This Will Be Our Year. <laughs> so, it, but these songs, these songs are 50 years old. Some, some nearly 60 years old. And the people are using them in contemporary films and, uh, and commercials. It's, 
it's I think it's fascinating. It's a huge mystery to me, but but I don't, I mean <laughs> I don't mind about it now. It's a mystery. I don't understand it, but it's wonderful that these songs are being discovered after all this time. I think they call that timeless. Do you know what? I think a lot of zombie songs are timeless. You know, people sometimes say to me, how do you feel about singing Time of the Season and She's Not There every night for years and years when you're on the road? But they are the timeless classics. And I love singing. And, and quite honestly, they're slightly different every night when you play them. And uh, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Speaking of Absolutely incredible albums. Just down the hall from where you performed the other night at Studio Two at Abbey Road, you recorded your debut solo disc, One Year, which is is an absolutely staggering album, one of my favorites. And I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that it's getting a reissue with uh, a bonus disc of uh, some unheard compositions and demos. Uh, can you take me back to those sessions? What, what was it like during that that one year? Well, I, you know, it, I think it was quite interesting in that it all, there, there's definitely a connection with Odyssey and Oracle because there was Rod Argent and Chris White co-producing me in Studio 3 with Peter Vince Engineering, and he engineered the majority of Odyssey and Oracle. So there was, huge, there was a huge connection with Odyssey and Oracle, and it was great to get the old team back together again. And we introduced a wonderful string arranger called Chris Gunning into the mix, and... I just think it was, he came up with things that was just so different. We were, we were saying to him, and I think this came from Rod more than anyone, think Bartok when you're doing hmm. things. Think Bartok. And boy, did he come up with some great arrangements. So unusual. And uh, one of them, uh, a song called Say You Don't Mind, which is a Denny Lane song, was a huge hit in the UK. It really that took me by surprise because um, it wasn't actually a string quartet. But it's written as if it was a string, for a string quartet, but it's actually a 21-piece string orchestra, but no rhythm track, no other instrument, just strings. And um, it was oh, a yeah. hit in the UK, but it, it never, it didn't make an impact at the time in the States. It's a little bit the opposite to the zombies because Time of the Season was a big hit in America. Time of the Season was never a hit in the UK, ever. It was a hit everywhere else, but not in the UK. Um, but the song from my first album, Say You Don't Mind, was a hit in the UK, but not in the States. Exactly the opposite. Oh, but an incredible track. I mean, you mentioned Bartok. I think of the, the string break in Misty Roses, which, I mean, for me, that's the definitive version of, of I know Tim Harden wrote it, but that's your version of, of Misty Roses, the definitive version of that song for me. That is an incredible track. Well, it's funny because I, I've, I'm a huge fan of Tim Harden and, and, um, I think he did an incredible version. But so I would never say one was better than the other. Hopefully people can enjoy <laughs> both of them. You know, I, I think they're both worth a listen. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of Tim Harding. And that particularly that song, it's such, you know, such a beautiful song. And the original songs that, that you wrote during these sessions, I mean, Caroline Goodbye, Though You're Far Away, I mean, they're my favorites on the album as well. I mean, I know you contributed... Um, just out of reach to the, the zombies canon. Uh, it makes me wish hearing these songs that you'd written more. I mean, did any of the one year tracks uh, date back to uh, the zombies era? I don't think so. No, I, I think um, I did write one other zombie tune. It's the first song I ever wrote is called uh, how we were before. It's a very romantic, simple tune. Um, but you know, I was sort of watching Rod and Chris and seeing them develop as writers and, as I said before, I didn't know they could write before She's Not There and the B-side, You Make Me Feel Good, were written. I, I, I had no idea. I thought songwriters came from a different part of the business to performing artists. I didn't realize. And I think it's another thing that we owe the Beatles, that they made us realize that you could write your own material. There seemed to be an unwritten law that uh, bands didn't write their own material, but they changed all that. And watching Rod and Chris develop as writers, it just encouraged me to, to have a go. And I just developed slowly over the years. And, and also, I went to live in a flat with a couple of guys who uh, were in the music business. And one was a manager. Um, um, one was a singer-songwriter called Duncan Brown. And if you ever check out his stuff, Duncan Brown, he had one hit in this country called Journey. 
but he made several really, really good albums. And he was also in a band called Metro, which was really good as well. Um, so I lived in this flat with these two guys, and Duncan was a wonderful classical guitarist. And I just sat me mesmerized by his playing. And all three of us played guitar. Duncan was by far the best. And we would play through the night. And they showed an interest in my writing that I wasn't aware of before. I wasn't aware that anyone was particularly interested in my writing. And they encouraged me. And that's why I, I called my second album Ennismore, because we lived in this flat apartment in a place called Ennismore Gardens in London, which is right behind the Albert Hall. So it's, it's a lovely area of London. And I thought that that's, in some ways, that's where my songwriting started, in that flat in Ennismore Gardens. I just started to get the idea of, of becoming a writer as well as a, as a singer. And um, they, they really encouraged me. So I'll always remember that. Duncan Brown, do check him out. He's, he's really, really good. And you have the album Journey too, right? Uh, I think the I think it was an album. It's called Journey. Yeah, with uh, keep the curtains closed today and oh, the gorgeous songs. I wish I'd recorded more with him. In fact, I've got some demos of me and him, and I mentioned it to someone the other day, and they said, "You've got, but they're on a reel-to-reel -reel tape. You know, I've got to I've got to have it uh, transferred." professionally because otherwise it might just disintegrate but when i mentioned that to someone actually in america he said oh you've got to get that onto either cd or or on you know onto something so that um, people would be really interested to hear that and we, we were just mucking around but, uh, <laughs> it's funny how time sort of makes uh, it changes how people view what you were thinking of as quite a light-hearted musical romp <laughs> just having fun and you know after 50 years people are saying man this is history you know you we, you've got to do something with this so um that's what's happened with the one year album it's kind of strange chris white's two sons uh were, were working on all his back catalog and chris has written many many songs and also he's produced a lot of people and so they're putting out a series of cds called the chris white experience and they were going through his attic, looking at, cassette, at, at cassettes, reel-to-reel -reel and what have you. And they found some reel-to-reels of songs of mine and sort of phoned me up really excitedly saying, we found all these songs. And when I listen to them, it's the most extraordinary feeling that because they're so old, I, I did certainly did not remember the sessions at all. And some of the songs I don't, well, I didn't remember them then. They're, they're a vague memory now. I've played them a few times. But most of these are just me sitting down with a guitar. And I would call them sort of rough ideas of songs. They're almost sort of pre-demos, a lot of them, really. But they do, they do show what kind of area I was, I was writing in. And the record company got to hear of these tracks. And then it was sort of taken out of my hands then. And... Uh, it, it's now a double album. Um, I don't, my input in that wasn't very much, except I sang the tracks in the beginning. Chris White's sons found the tapes and the record company took the tapes and put them on the, on the CD. I hope people will, in, will enjoy them. I mean, it, they, I think they do have some, some value. Oh, the, the song that, that's out there now that I've heard, I Won't Let You Down, which is available for, for, for preview, is absolutely stunning. It is, I cannot wait to hear the rest. It is gorgeous. It, 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 I mean, it makes me wish that it was a double album to start with. It is an absolutely incredible song. You've picked up on that. Um, it's so funny. I mean, there are, yeah, there are 13 other songs like that. You know, some have a story and some... Some don't. I mean, there was there's one on there, and um, it was written because there were some phony zombies uh, going up and playing. I think there were three phony zombie bands. I think those guys in ZZ Top were in one of them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and um, because the zombies had finished, and sort of nearly two years later, time of the season was a big hit in the states. There was a huge vacuum. You know, there was all this work and no band. And so of course, a lot of managers start thinking, well, listen, we, we don't like vacuums. We've got to fill it. And so they, these bands um, started playing. And at one, on one occasion, Chris White was in the offices of Rolling Stone and they said, look, we've got the phone number of the manager of one of these bands. So we want you, Chris White, 
original bass player in the Zombies, to phone him up, but <laughs> pretend that you're from Rolling Stone and get the story. So he phoned up the guy and um, the guy said, well, look, the thing is, we wanted to honour the life of the lead singer of the Zombies who was killed in a car crash. And uh, this is why we put the band together. And this is in Rolling Stone. I, actually, I think this article is printed, at least in part, on the sleeve of the double album that's coming out. And so I oh, wrote, yes. one of the songs that I wrote is, Yesterday in Rolling Stone, a man said, I'm dead. And that's, <laughs> that's how the song starts. Because <laughs> it was a very strange feeling <laughs> to have it in a major, uh, you know, a, a major outlet. But you're dead. You're dead. You know what I mean? <laughs> News of my death is rather uh, rather um, premature, I'm afraid. <laughs> that's a famous statement, not mine. Um, yeah, it was kind of weird. And that got me an, an idea for one of the songs. Is it a sing your own song? It is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't. I've, I've read. I've, I'm looking forward to hearing them, but I, I, I haven't had a chance to hear them yet. Oh, so they are quite rough. You know what would be really exciting? If there was a general interest in these songs and we could expand them and, and you know, there's enough material there to, to record an album. Wouldn't that be extraordinary? After 50 or 60 years, we take these very primitive demos and, and make them into actual tracks. That would be a thrill. Yes, it would. Yes, that that would I I would love that, and I know that that many people would too. I mean, I know that you and Rod and the band right now are are hard at work on a new uh, new Zombies album, but perhaps uh, perhaps after that, yeah, we're we're sort of halfway through a Zombies album. We probably started seven tracks, but some of them are not finished, and um, hopefully we can we can wrap that up certainly before the end of the year. And, and I, I would hope that we'll have a new album early next year. It's just with the situation as it is at the moment, it's difficult to get everyone together. We, the last album and this album, we've decided we want everyone in the studio at the same time playing. You know, in some ways it's almost like a live album, but in a studio setting. But we find that people play differently if they're all in the same room at the same time. There's an energy that you don't get if you record your parts separately and, and layer the track. Um, so on the last album, still got that hunger. Everyone was in the studio at the same time. We kept the solos from the live versions and we kept the lead vocals. We only overdubbed um, uh, harmonies, vocal harmonies. Otherwise it's, it's wow. like a live album. Oh, that was a, a highlight of, of your concert at Abbey Road was hearing some, some, new, some of the new songs that are uh, coming out soon with an incredible string accompaniment. They're absolutely gorgeous. Weren't they wonderful players? Really, yeah. really good. So, so wonderful. Well, I, I hope we can work some more with that quartet. They're called Q Strings. Really, really good. Oh, it was, it, was such, it was such a treat to hear, you know, get a tease of the, uh, the upcoming album. I can't wait to hear the rest of it. I think it's going to be good. I'm, I'm, I really do. Oh, well, Colin, your music has meant the world to me. It has touched me for many, many, many years. It has brought me so much joy to me and, and my loved ones. I, I am so grateful for that. And I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed having a chat. Thanks for having me on the show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Inside the Studio, a production of iHeartRadio. For more episodes of Inside the Studio or other fantastic shows, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.